everyone. Welcome to tonight's panel discussion. My name is Beth Hannan and I'm the Associate Director of the Forum. If you don't know us, the Forum is an educational charity that tries to bring philosophers and other academics out from the ivory tower and into the harsh glare of the public audience so that you can quiz them about their research and their ideas. Uh, we're able to do this because we get some fantastic support from our donors and support from the LSE for which we're incredibly grateful. Uh, if you want to be one of those donors, please visit our website where you can find <laughs> our Just Giving page. As well as being able to donate to us, you'll find podcasts of all of our events and some blog posts from academics writing about their work too. So you should get something in return for your money. Uh, just a couple of housekeeping matters before I turn over to the panel. Uh, if you could turn the volume off your phone, that would be fantastic, but there's no need to turn your phone off completely. In fact, I encourage you to live tweet along with us. We have a very own hashtag uh, that, you can, that you can use. And also, please note that the event is being recorded for a podcast, so if you do ask a question, please wait for the roving mic to find you so your voice can be picked up in it. That's enough for me. I'll hand you over to Andrew for tonight's event. Hi there, um, my name is Andrew Buskell. I'm a fellow here in the Department of Philosophy, Logic, and Scientific Method. And it's a real pleasure to welcome you today um, to this conversation about Darwin and the social sciences. I think we're all familiar with the idea of memes popularized on the internet and in popular media. But over the last 30 or 40 years, there have been a number of innovators in psychology and primatology and the social sciences at large into the study of culture, into the origins of our human psychology and into human evolution. And in various ways, our speakers are really at the forefront of, of these issues and these debates. And so I'm very excited to, to introduce them and to have them speaking on these issues. So, beginning at your left and moving to your right, I'd like to introduce uh, Alex Masudi, uh, an associate professor in cultural evolution, the Department of Bioscience, and a member of the Human Biological and Cultural Evolution Group at the University of Exeter, Cornwall. Um, Alex has really been at the forefront of a recent revival in cultural evolution um, and carries out a number of psychological and social scientific studies into cultural evolution, particularly in social learning. Um, on Alex's left is Professor Timothy Lewins, um, Professor in History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge, and the Deputy Director of the Center for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences, and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Um, Tim is an expert in the philosophy of science, the philosophy of biology, an expert on Darwin, who has recently written written the book on, on cultural evolution. To Tim's left, um, Professor Christina Torin, uh, Professor in Anthropology at St. Andrews. Um, Christina carries out fieldwork in Fiji, in the Pacific, and Melanesia, um, and brings a really unique perspective to the issues in culture um, and cultural evolution. Before we begin, uh, I just want to set out a few um, guidelines to what's going to happen. 
Um, we are going to be structuring our debate around four main issues. How are we to study culture? How do we come to have or inherit culture? Can the study of culture be Darwinian? And what is the future of human evolution? Within each of these questions, um, there will be a brief introduction by one, one of the members of our panel. We'll then open up the discussion to the other members of the panel before opening it up to you, the audience. We'll then solicit about two or three questions, which we'll throw back to the panel to discuss um, before we move on to our next issue. So the first issue we're going to be speaking about is the nature of culture. What is this, this thing that we speak about when we talk about culture, and how are we best to understand and study it? Um, I'm very happy to have Professor Christina Torin um, introduce us to these issues. Christina. Am I coming over to you, or no, what am I doing? Um, I'm sitting here. Sit there. Yes, okay, please. fine. All right, well, poor Andrew. I've placed him in a very, very difficult position because I never use the word culture. I do not use it. I mean it. I've never used it. I don't find it an analytically useful term. Okay? As an anthropologist uh, who works with living people, I have to uh, deal with the fact that different people in the world have very different, can have very different understandings of the nature of the person, what it is to be a person, of the nature of sociality, the, of relations between people, and of everything else uh, you care to name. And working as an anthropologist, I also have to deal with the fact that all of us take for granted our own understandings of the world. In other, in other words, we tend to think that our fundamental understandings, we just we don't question them. We think that they're simply clearly right and proper, and if other people don't think the way we do, then there's something probably wrong with them, okay? Uh, you know, they're not well-developed enough or something like that, okay? I have to take a different view because it seems quite obvious to me that all our ideas of the world are historically constituted. It's a very simple thing to grasp. All ideas have a history, and that history is constantly transforming. We know that. We only have to think for a moment to realize how ideas are changing uh, over time. And uh, this uh, idea of historical transformation for my own work and the way I conceive of human being is that we are ourselves filled up with history. We're filled up with our own past, okay? And that past is a history of social relations. It's a history of relations with other people, and it informs who we are, and we evince it in absolutely every aspect of our being. Now, of course, I want to understand that process, but it's precisely not framed in terms of a distinction between biology and culture. I, I really mean it when I say that I, I find culture... Uh, a, a truly useless idea. And that's not a new thing for me. I've always had the same feeling about it. Never known where it was to be located. Okay, so 
What I want to uh, talk very briefly about tonight is this idea of each person, each one of us, filled up with our own past and evincing that past in everything we say and do. We carry it about in our bodies. We project our past you know, uh, onto the world, as it were. Okay, and you can think of, it, uh, of the human being, of yourself, as... Uh, a system of transformations that continues through time. So you can think of this thing, okay, this body, if you like, as a system of transformations that continues through time. You know, at all points, your blood is going around your body, you know, you're sweating, you're digesting, your hair's falling out, your skin's sloughing off, and God knows what else um, is happening to you. But it's a, you, you continue through time as a system of transformations. And this uh, process is, can be called autopoiesis, okay? If you start with the, 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 the single-celled creature in development, the zygote, what happens is that it develops from within. Okay, it's a system. It develops as a system of differentiation, and these uh, um, these differentiations mean that you can think of any given organic form, any form of life, as autopoietic. Sounds like a very jargony word, but it's useful. It simply means self-producing, self-creating. And uh, this notion of self-creation, self-production, is very useful when you're, you, because it enables you to think of all life in these terms. So you can have a, you don't have to make sharp distinctions between different kind of uh, or, 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 uh, life forms because they can all, they all clearly have a history. Okay, so. When I'm thinking about human beings, because it's humans I work with, I'm thinking of um, us as being always, each one of us, the product of an always unique history of social relations in and through which we think and speak and act. And this history is uniquely our own. It encompasses physiological and molecular processes, which are themselves amenable for analysis as self-producing systems, whose continuity through time is a function of transformation. In other words, I want you to have the idea that history, you can look at all aspects of our being as a function of a, a, of a lived history. So for each one of us, our lived history takes in the lived histories of previous generations insofar as their histories become ours as a function at once of specific uh, molecular constitution of that initial single-celled being that's there in the womb that is going to become you, me, the next person, uh, including the DNA and everything else in it with its intrinsic self-organizing tendencies. And also we take into this process how we were parented as a function of how our parents were parented and their parents back through many generations and of our encountering those others whose histories thereby intersect with our own, more or less significantly. So what interests me as an anthropologist is how we become who we are, all right? And I look at that process as, a, as, an, as an historical process, but not where the history is outside us, but that we actually carry it with, it, with us and that we project it into the world. 
Um, so this history of social relations that we live evinces itself in all and every aspect of our environing world and encompasses everything about us from our genes to our most private thoughts. So when you're thinking about this, if you're, if you're, if you're uh, trying to tell somebody else what I actually said, it's really important not to conflate my idea of history with culture. Definitely not, okay? Because I'm thinking about the way that we can conceive of all aspects of the world, including all dimensions of human being, indeed of all living things, as historically constituted. Now, this is not to deny evolution. I wouldn't dream of denying evolution. Uh, that said, I am skeptical of the validity of the dominant gene-centered adaptationist perspective. I take history to be continuous with evolution um, in the sense that they refer to the same process understood in terms of different uh, timescales. Um, and uh, in terms of evolutionary theory, I suppose I'm more uh, um, sympathetic to developmental systems theory, which itself looks at the origin and development, in other words, the ontogeny, which is my own concern, of living things as part of complex dynamic systems. Um, and the, the, you, you, developmental, system, uh, developmental systems theory has given rise to uh, interesting contemporary revisions of evolutionary theory. Um, I think probably should stop there, Andrew. Yeah, that's great. So we have this, this rich picture of complexity and historical richness um, in the background, which I think serves as a good foil for hopefully what uh, Tim and Alex are going to say. So, Alex, why don't you, why don't you start? Uh, sure. I think I probably agree with lots of what Christina says, but I do use the word uh, culture. I do find it useful. I guess I'm coming more from a... Uh, biological perspective uh, from evolutionary biology, um, biological anthropology perhaps, and um, you know, I agree that um, genes are not the only inheritance system and uh, natural selection on genetic variation is not the only way to get adaptations, uh, which leads me to the idea of culture, I suppose. So I would define culture as any kind of socially transmitted, socially learned information, anything that you get from somebody else uh, non-genetically, which kind of fits it into a biological uh, framework. So colloquially, the ideas we get, beliefs, attitudes, um, customs, norms, everything we learn from other people within society um, that's not genetically inherited and is not um, individually uh, created by a single individual. So I find that useful because it's a broad definition and it brings in, for example, comparative perspectives. So if you see culture as um, something broadly that is acquired from other individuals, then suddenly you can start talking about, uh, say, honeybees, which do waggle dances to each other and communicate the location of food. So I'm happy calling that culture. Um, it's socially learned information. They're learning from each other. Um, you can talk about uh, things like cultural traditions that um, primatologists have found in, uh, say, chimpanzees. So famous work showing that some groups of chimpanzees will nutcrack, other groups won't nutcrack, not because they don't have nuts or, um, or um, stones, but just because that particular 
Um, innovation hasn't spread in the, in the second chimpanzee community, whereas it has in the first. I see no problem calling that culture and cultural traditions. Um, and then our own uh, cumulative culture uh, that we have where ideas and beliefs are, are transmitted from generation to generation socially. So I'm happy, uh, as we'll talk about a bit later on, calling that uh, cultural evolution. I find it useful to talk about culture and talk about the socially learned information because it brings in these other species, brings in comparative works. Humans are placed within a big evolutionary framework where we can ask questions about why culture as a capacity evolved, how different species' cultural capacities uh, vary in those ways that I mentioned, and we can start talking about things like gene culture coevolution, where uh, genetic evolution will interact with cultural evolution, which will in turn shape genetic um, evolution. So I, I, coming from my perspective, I guess I find um, the idea of culture useful in terms of thinking about information and learning and inheritance, um, and certainly culture is, is part of biology uh, based on these ideas of gene culture coevolution. Great. Tim, any, any sort of summative remarks? It's no accident that I'm placed in between these two, I don't think. Um, so I'm here in the role of uh, somewhat middle-of-the-road mushy philosopher to offer a, a bland synthesis between these two uh, more, more interesting views that you've just heard. Um, a little bit of genealogy might be helpful here. So there's a picture that's broadly accurate, which says that for a lot of the 20th century, evolutionary theorists focused primarily on the notion that evolution in any species you like is a matter of natural selection acting on genes and genes changing their frequencies in those populations. And so there was a, a, a significant movement applying those kinds of ideas to humans as well, thinking about ourselves through the lens of genetic evolution. Uh, and that's what led to the so-called sociobiological approach. It's also partly the, the way in which people have thought about evolutionary psychology as well. You think about humans as a species for which our ways of thinking are formed by natural selection acting on genetic variation. Now, along comes a group of people primarily trained in the biological sciences who say, well, hang on a minute. It's not the case that the only way that we humans get to do things that are useful with respect to the environment, or it's not the case that the only way in which we get to match our environments is by natural selection acting on genetic variation. We humans can also pick up good tricks by learning from each other as well. And so this group of people who effectively build this business of applying evolutionary thinking to culture start to ask questions like, how does learning make a difference? How does learning make a difference to our species? And how can you bring in learning from others into a standard evolutionary story for humans? Because after all, the thought goes for humans, the story needs to be made more complicated than just one where evolution is a matter of natural selection acting on genes. And so they say we need to bring culture in as well. Now, what's interesting and in some ways I think quite ironic is that I think the people who put that kind of picture together thought, well, this will be a way of reuniting these kind of biological approaches to humanity with sort of more social anthropo anthropological approaches because we're giving culture a, a kind of primary role here in addition to genetic variation. 
And what's funny is that that's just not the way it happened at all, because it turned out that, and Christina's quite representative here, I think, in many ways, the social anthropologists never liked this category of culture in the first place. So people thought, oh, you know, we'll, we'll be appealing to these people because they're going to like the category of culture. They don't. Why not? Because they don't know how you're supposed to carve up the terrain between the things that we owe to nature on the one hand and the things that we owe to culture on the other hand. And you can kind of see why uh, people worry about that, because there is a sense in which you can take any trait you like. It's going to be very, very hard to say that the development of that trait owes nothing at all to social influence, if only because even things like broad patterns of migration then affect which kinds of people are to be found in which parts of the world, which in turn affect who ends up mating with who, which in turn ends up affecting what kinds of genetic combinations get passed into future generations. So there is a sense in which this notion of historicity that Christine is interested in affects everything, including questions about which genes come together, and there's a sense in which in that way socialization is always implicated the whole way down. So there's no easy cut to make between the culture and the nature. Now, at the same time, I don't think we should be too worried about that. So at the same time, I think that if you look at the kind of work that people like Alex are interested in, they do talk about so-called gene culture co-evolution. They talk about so-called dual inheritance models. The thought goes you have some traits which are controlled by genetic evolution. You have other traits which are controlled by something like learning. Standard example here... Uh, is the evolution of lactose tolerance, right? So the idea goes there's a bit of, there's a bit of culture on the one hand. Something like seven or 8,000 years ago, people begin to learn how to milk cows. And they learn this from other people, and this trait of dairying spreads around the human population. Then what happens? It turns out that because of this cultural change, there's now an advantage to be had from being lactose tolerant. Because if you're lactose tolerant, you can suddenly take advantage of all the calories that dairying makes available. And so lactose tolerance starts to spread through a process of old-fashioned natural selection. And this is often described as a two-track model, right? You've got, on the one hand, natural selection acting on lactose tolerance. You've got, on the other hand, people learning how to do dairying from each other. You've got the cultural bit on the one hand. You've got the natural bit on the other hand. Now, you can quibble about the extent to which being able to milk a cow is really purely cultural because, after all, it depends on having the right muscles and the right coordination and there's going to be some sense in which that's to do with physiology. And you can also quibble about the sense in which lactose tolerance is just about your genes because it turns out that you can become lactose tolerant if you're intolerant rather if you're stressed or if you eat the wrong kinds of foods. And those all sound a little bit cultural. So you can worry about exactly how you're going to make a nature culture split, but I don't think any of that matters for the bread and butter of the kind of stuff that Alex and people that he works with are interested in, because even if you don't know what to assign to the nature bucket and what to assign to the culture bucket, you can still tell a perfectly good story about the way in which people who are lactose tolerant could take advantage of this new source of calories on offer, and because of that, they were able to have more babies who were lactose tolerant too, and because of that, lactose tolerance spread through the population. And why was lactose tolerance suddenly advantageous? Because a lot of people have very quickly started learning how to milk cows from each other. And you can tell that kind of story fine without having to make a profound decision on how you draw the nature culture cut, it seems to me. So on the one hand, I'm very sympathetic with Christina that the nature culture distinction isn't a good one. 
But at the same time, I think that a lot of the bread and butter of these cultural evolutionary models doesn't require such a distinction in the first place. I think that's a great point at which to open up the discussion to, to you, the audience. Um, I will be taking two or three questions. Um, please, um, before you ask your question, wait for the microphone to get to you. Um, gentlemen here at the front. And if there was any other questions, I think we'll take them at the same time and then we'll throw them over to our panel. No other questions? Very, very interesting presentations. Uh, I'd be interested in what each of the panel thinks is what it is that evolves. Uh, autopoiesis seems to be to do with an individual person who has got a huge amount of inheritance history behind, including the genetics. But, but people, you can, only, you can only develop your one self. So are you talking about individuals or are you talking about societies? Great. So a question about individuals and populations and how that fits into this idea about culture and evolution. Um, Christina, why don't you start us off? Oh, that's a really good question. I'm very glad you asked it. No, I'm not talking about individuals in our sense, okay, because the idea of the individual is a specific historically constituted idea of the person. It's one we hold. It's not held by loads of other people in the world, okay? We tend to have a notion that the individual is prior and sociality comes afterwards, okay? The model that I'm giving you, with the historicity absolutely in, intrinsic to it, is of pe each one of us is, of course, autonomous to a degree. We've got to be, because, you know, otherwise this isn't going to work. But I think of the, the ontogeny, the origin and development, as being constituted in relations between people. And I think of those relations as intersubjective. And that intersubjective relation is already there before the child is born. So part of what's happening in, in ontogeny is that the child is growing up in a process of taking into itself the relations that are, as it were, around it. And how does it do that? Not by transmission not by socialization, not by inheritance. It does it by making sense of what is going on. And it makes sense of the world and its relation to other people and itself in the course of these relations with other people. So, yeah, thank you for your question. That's great. Alex, did you want to jump in? Uh, so the question is what evolves. I guess the key thing there is how you define evolution. Um, I guess I would define evolution in the same way, maybe we're presaging if, uh, what we're going to be talking about next, but I would define evolution in the similar way that Darwin defined it in The Origin of Species. You need some kind of variation between entities. You need some kind of competition or selection such that not all of them will survive or persist. And you need some kind of inheritance, some kind of persistence uh, to subsequent uh, time periods, subsequent generations. So in that sense, you know, as Darwin pointed out, uh, species evolve, you can apply those principles to biological populations of individual organisms with different uh, genes. They vary, there's selection that goes on, um, and there's genetic inheritance. So I would argue that you can also apply that same idea to um, cultural traits, 
to you might call them memes, we'll come on to that later on, um, but you have different ideas, beliefs, attitudes um, within a population of people, um, you have some kind of selection or competition between those ideas, and then you have some kind of inheritance, not genetic, but through social learning, through cultural transmission. Um, and it doesn't just have to be at the level of the trait that the idea, it could be um, at higher levels, so people have talked about things like cultural group selection, so different groups of individuals with different ideas in common might there might be selection at that level so you don't have to um, be at the same level but I would when, when you're asking what evolves I would say um, that cultural traits groups individuals that evolution can act on uh, on different levels within that cultural system if you think about culture as an inheritance system um, and in terms of uh, in terms of information I think that's actually an excellent point at which to segue into our next topic um, so if we think of culture as an inherent system, if we think of, think of it as something that we inherit, much like we have a biological endowment that we inherit, a natural question is, well, to what extent um, is this inheritance system going to be similar to that of our biological system? What can we learn from our acquired knowledge of biology that we can, can transfer to help understand um, inheritance in the cultural realm? Um, and on this topic, um, we have Tim Lewins introducing. Thank you. Um, so, I, I, I mean, I, maybe I'll come back to this in a minute, but it's not always the case that when we think about culture or evolution uh, that one has to think about this in terms of a distinct inheritance system. I mean, I've already alluded to that in a way, the sense that culture is something that you could study on its own, separable from aspects of physiology or anatomy, say, is one that you might want to problematize. Running gait, for example, is that a matter of culture or is that a matter of a natural trait? Uh, it's very unclear how we decide that. These issues about applying evolutionary thinking to cultural change or social change have gone back a very long time, and people have thought about them in markedly different kinds of ways. So, I mean, Alex has already mentioned Darwin. Um, if you look back to Darwin's work on what he called the human moral sense in The Descent of Man, Darwin was very keen to give an evolutionary explanation for the ways in which we interact with each other, and particularly for the ways in which we interact and, and, and conceive of each other in ethical terms, particularly interested in the ways in which we tend to sacrifice ourselves for other people, even when those others are not related to us. Now, in The Descent of Man, for sure, Darwin tells a story about how it is that we come to acquire these forms of moral behavior, how those forms of moral behavior become more and more elaborated over time. But Darwin's story there is primarily a gradualist one. For Darwin, evolution in its most general sense is a matter of small steps taking place over very large historical periods. It's not always a matter of the action of natural selection. So when Darwin talks about the evolution of the moral sense, sometimes he is indeed talking about natural selection acting on individuals. Sometimes he's talking about natural selection acting on groups 
of humans, particularly he thinks warring against each other. But sometimes natural selection is just not part of the story at all. Instead, it's about communication, bringing about gradual changes in moral norms, in particular societies, feedback loops as people learn what works and what doesn't, and as those things that work then become taught more broadly in a population. So for Darwin, the main way in which he thinks about cultural evolution is simply gradual processes, whether it involves selection or not. Um, Of course, more recently, modern theorists have done something rather different. So they've begun to kind of talk in, in the way that Alex has done. So they've said things like, well, we know that In the organic world, you have organisms that vary. They differ in terms of their fitness. They can pass uh, valuable traits onto their offspring. And in that kind of way, it doesn't matter what kind of species you're talking about, they can evolve over time. And some people have said, well, hang on a minute. Human culture has a similar set of features as well, so that it makes sense to talk about natural selection acting on cultural entities too. You've got variation because, after all, there are many, many different tools on the market or there are many, many different beliefs on the market. Some of these tools do better at making copies of themselves than others or some of these beliefs do a better job of persisting into future generations than others do, depending on how attractive people find them or how useful people find them. And so the thought goes, in that way, something like natural selection can act on cultural entities as well, whether we're talking about skills, whether we're talking about artifacts, whether we're talking about ideas, belief systems, scientific theories, it doesn't really matter. In every case, you've got variation, and in every case, you've got differential survival because what was around in great supply in the 1940s may not be quite the same as what's around in great supply right now and bang hey presto there you go you've got a full-blown theory of cultural evolution Um, it's not clear I mean I think we should we should agree that in some sense or another there's something very much like natural selection going on in, in the cultural domain where people will then jump in and start causing trouble for these kinds of views is they'll say, well, to what extent does the analogy really run close between what you might think of as classic genetic evolution on the one hand and these cultural processes that I've mentioned on the other. Um, And there certainly are are some disanalogies. So when Darwin used to set up his kind of illustrative examples of natural selection in the origin of species, he would often mention wolves. Okay. So a a, a baby wolf has two parents, and all baby wolves will have two parents, and any baby wolf that you like will have inherited its genes from two different parents. Now, it's not so clear that when you talk about cultural traits, you can assign to them a nice, neat, stable number of parents in the same kind of way. So I like to cook. I... uh, recently cooked kedgeree. I have a a way of cooking kedgeree that I particularly like. Uh, Who did I inherit that? What's what's the parent of my kedgeree-making ability? Well, it's very... Maybe it's probably a little bit my mum, probably a little bit, frankly, probably a little bit Delia Smith. Probably uh, there was a person I shared a house with for a while... So maybe three people, maybe four, actually. I think I saw Mary Berry making a kedgeree, and I think that slightly influenced what I was doing as well. So maybe... But then, of course, it doesn't mean, oh, so wolves have two parents, kedgeree has five, right? Of course not. 
everyone who makes kedgeri may well have inherited their kedgeri-making skills from varying numbers of people. Okay. So one worry is that trying to pin down anything like a stable, reliable, fixed number of cultural parents is going to be hard. And that also means it's going to be very hard in the cultural realm to come up with anything like a set of Mendelian rules, anything like that that informs our understanding of genetic inheritance. Um, but there are other problems as well. So in the, in the organic realm, people like to draw a pretty clear distinction between between the germ line on, on the one hand and the soma on the other, right? So if you want to make a baby wolf run faster, if you do it by intervening in that baby wolf's zygotic DNA and the baby wolf runs faster, then the baby wolf's kids will run faster as well. But if you make the baby wolf run faster by putting it on a special wolf treadmill for a long time and it starts running faster, that probably won't automatically appear in the wolf's offspring. So we've got a pretty clear sense that there are germline interventions on the one hand and they'll have a reliable effect in future generations. And there are other kinds of interventions that might have a one-shot effect, but they won't have a reliable effect in future generations. And then people start asking questions like, well, how are you going to draw, how are you going to pick a germline if you're going to start talking about cultural evolution. And I think that's a very hard thing to do as well. So one of the reasons why it's hard is kind of go back to my, my kedgeri example. What's the germline for my kedgeri-making skills? It's true that maybe if I suddenly, you know, lying awake at night thinking, oh, how can I make my kedgeri better, right, and I somehow get an idea for maybe using, you know, flat-leaf parsley instead of curly-leaf parsley, who'd do such a thing, but, you know, maybe... Maybe that would be the idea I'd have. And then, and then you know, I, I try it out, and, and lo, everybody really likes it, and everybody who comes to my house to try my kedgeri copies it, and I tell them, you know, you need to use the flat-leaf parsley instead of the curly-leaf parsley. It takes off. That's one way of intervening. But there are other ways of making kind of reliable differences. My hand might just slip. There might be some kind of accident in the ingredients that are supplied if it tastes nicer. We can look at the processes. Humans are very good at attending to things and seeing what happens. So precisely because of that, pretty much any intervention anywhere in the entire production process for making kedgeri, from conception through to eating, can potentially make it into the next generation. Because of that, it's really hard to find anything like a cultural germline. It doesn't really matter where you intervene. It's always got a good chance of being propagated if people like it. And if they don't, then nobody will care. And so for that reason, people start quibbling. You know, there's nothing much like Mendelian rules. There's nothing like a germline. Is it really the same? Now, my general rule here, and maybe this is surprising for a philosopher, is you just shouldn't care about that kind of stuff too much. Too many people who work on evolutionary approaches to culture have got very, very absorbed in the question, how strong is the analogy between organic evolution and cultural evolution? And it seems to me that the best way to be productive is just to forget about that completely. And actually, some of the most productive work on cultural evolution doesn't even try to answer those questions. Instead, it begins from a very practical point of view. It says, well, here's something we know about humans. We know that they learn from each other. And so let's see if we can build some evolutionary models that show how, if you add learning into a species... How does learning make a difference to what can happen in that species? And so I think some of the most informative ways of doing work in cultural evolutionary theory have simply tried to find some way or another 
of looking at how the ability to learn from others changes standard evolutionary dynamics. And you can do that without having to say, oh, we better make sure that however it works, it works in a way that's really closely analogous to genetic evolution. It doesn't have to at all. And there are interesting, informative mathematical models of cultural evolution which don't even try to borrow too closely from bog-standard natural selection acting on genes. And so it seems to me that it's actually too much of a temptation to get hung up on how close these analogies are and potentially much more productive to just try to build some useful models that let us see how learning makes a difference. That's great. So we've problematized some of the notions, um, the analogous notions between culture and biology. Alex, did you want to jump in here? Uh, yeah, I, I want to thank Tim for giving me license to ignore philosophers who demand that I define all my terms and provide definitions for everything. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree... I agree with, uh, with uh, what Tim just said. I mean, I find it useful to make a distinct, uh, distinction between Darwinian evolution and neo-Darwinian evolution. So Darwinian evolution is the kind of thing that Darwin talked about, where you've got variation. He didn't know where it came from, but there's variation. Some kind of selection. He didn't really understand how it worked, where the competition was. Some kind of inheritance. You know, he famously had Mendel's. Um, pea plant experiments uh, lying on his shelf but the pages were uncut so he knew very little if anything about genetics and genetic inheritance but he came up with his theory of evolution uh, all the same without knowing those details and then neo-Darwinian evolution is evolution or Darwinian evolution plus Mendelian inheritance and random blind genetic mutation and all the things that population geneticists discovered uh, since Darwin so I would say you know Cultural evolution, when we're thinking about culture, it's Darwinian, but it's not neo-Darwinian. So it's Darwinian, you've got the, the bare framework that Darwin suggested, but then it's up to us, and I agree with Tim entirely, that it's a very hard um, endeavor. It's, you know, it's a, one of the most challenging things in science, I think, to put the details in. So how does cultural inheritance work? Who do we learn from? Um, as Tim was pointing out, some of the, the complexities there. I mean, I'm not sure I would make it as much of a dichotomy as that. So you know, wolves are a very good species to talk about that kind of Mendelian inheritance, but then you've got um, plants and bacteria which have horizontal gene transfer where they're swapping genes between each other. So there's no real sense in which bacteria or uh, many plant species have two parents either. So that's quite similar to human culture in many ways. Um, and you know, Darwin talked about Lamarckian um, inheritance of acquired characteristics as well, so that you can fit that back into uh, Darwin's scheme. So I, I kind of... yeah pretty much agree with what Tim said. I, mean, I, th I find it useful to think about a broad Darwinian idea of cultural evolution, but then it's up to us as cultural evolution researchers or social scientists in general, hopefully, to fill in those details and study human social learning and human innovation and creativity and all of these kind of things that are common across the social sciences. You know, these are core topics across the existing traditional social sciences, but I think are not usually brought within the same framework in, in the way that happens if you adopt an evolutionary framework, suddenly innovation is linked to um, transmission and creativity is, is uh, linked to social learning and it kind of puts it all into a, a single framework. So that's kind of why I adopt an evolutionary approach and, and, try, and try and push this idea of Darwinian but not neo-Darwinian cultural evolution. Christina? Yeah, I just want to briefly go back to that first question of what evolves, which I didn't answer. Um, uh, I think it's really important. If you're 
taking this uh, notion of us as filled up with history, and historicity is the thing that you have crucially to deal with, and the, the fact that history and evolution are flat onto one another, they're continuous, okay? All that's happening is that you're seeing one closer up than the other, okay? You're looking at different time scales. Now, if you're thinking like that and you're asking yourself what evolves, in developmental systems theory terms, what is evolving or what evolves is the life cycle. Now, if you think of something like a life cycle, you can see immediately that you're looking at a really complex developmental system, all right? So therefore, I have to say, Tim, that I think that your characterization, your little example of um, Kedri making as a kind of, you know, a learned thing or some kind of, I don't know whether you'd gone so far as to talk about it as a cultural trait, but this is going to sound really rude and it's not meant to, but it's not interesting. You know, of <laughs> course, it's true that we could take that example, we could take it, and we could follow it through beautifully, neatly, probably tracking it from, you know, wherever you started doing it in your Cambridge kitchen and where you'd got it from and where it then went to and whether the kedgeree was made with the flat leaf or the curly leaf and all of this. But what we're not getting with that is the whole thing about the production the exchange, the consumption of the food, what eating is about, what food is for, where does food fit in your idea of the person, what is its cosmological significance. You know, you have people in the world who have cosmologies that are shat. And I do mean this, actually, that they are the product of an originary being shitting Live tweet that, yeah. All of that. Okay, so where is food in that cosmology? And, and yes, and I've given this example for its shock value, but, but it shows you that you're actually dealing with something that is much more complex. And when you talk like that, you just pull, you pull out this, you, 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 you leech the thing of everything that's interesting about it. Yeah, well, let me say, I wasn't giving the example of Kedri uh, as a sort of rallying call for <laughs> people to finally unite behind what I regard as the most interesting cultural phenomenon there is. I mean, I was, I was give, uh, particularly not mine, particularly not my Kedri, uh, I was giving the example of Kedri simply to illustrate the fact that, uh, that, that you know, these, these skills don't have single or even any reliable number of cultural parents. Um, so. so on the bombshell... <laughs> On the bombshell that philosophers are uninteresting and maybe should be ignored, I think we will open up, open up the questions to the audience. Um, so again, um, we'll hopefully take about two or three in, in quick succession and then throw it up to the panel. The gentleman up here at the front, and I think there's another gentleman at the far back. Can you think uh, cultural evolution? I'm just going back to the earlier uh, speech, but uh, do, you, do you think this, that concept general systems theory... I think a Canadian central print think a little bit Balanfi developed that. If any of the panel could say the relevant general systems theory to the problems you've been discussing. Great. So a question about uh, Bertalanfi and general systems. Um, gentleman up at the back. There's just to, to clarify some some things in my own head. I mean, there is this notion of development and sort of de- developmental theory, and um, and then there's this notion of evolution, and the two obviously sort of intersect. But 
I mean, to, just to kind of, is it possible to kind of give us a, a clear definition of an evolu sorry, a, a developmental theory that excludes an evolutionary kind of component? In other words, can there only be development as evolution, or can there be a form of development that isn't evolutionary? Great. So both questions broadly about development, about systems, how are we to understand them, and their the role possibly as evolutionary. Christina, why don't you, why don't you start? Um, well, it's sort of, you know, in a way you would have to say no, because you could always take an evolutionary stance on developmental systems. You can do that. There's no problem with doing that, because as if they're in their nature historical, if what you're always looking at is historically, historical transformation, and that's continuous with evolution, then yes, of course you can... You can Uh, you, you're not really saying that the two are... They're not, they're not different in kind. They're continuous with one another. It's a question of how close up you're looking. You know, I work with living people, so I'm interested in micro-historical transformations. In other words, you know, in ontogenies of actual living people. Well, you could pull back from that and be looking at, from an, uh, an evolutionary point of view at the d development of sort of life cycles on a really long historical trajectory. So my question was the other way around. Can you conceive of oh. a developmental theory that is not evolutionary? So I guess do evolution... I, I, I can't quite under understand the question in the sense that... Do we always think about development in terms of evolution, or is there a way of thinking about development that is not evolutionary in essence? You know, is there a form of process that is not based on a, on a conception of evolution? Well, I guess my conception of evolution is very broad, okay? It's not the gene adaptationist notion. So... Uh, You know, I, I, in a way I would say no, because I don't have a problem with, with thinking of, uh, with the term evolution in itself. What I have a problem with is how we are going to conceive of evolution and of life, you know, of which we humans are just one uh, s small part. So I suppose in a way I wouldn't want to pull any of it out of evolution. I wouldn't want to say no, somehow or other you, you, you could do that. So, Tim, maybe you could say a little bit about this idea of developmental systems theory and systems uh, in general. I mean, mate, let, me, let, let, me, let me try and sort of say, say what I think Christina's view is. Um, <laughs> so uh, so the, 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 I mean, of course, you can have a view about development that doesn't say anything one way or another about evolution. You can have views about development that are entirely neutral about evolution because you can simply be seeking to explain how it is that a fertilized egg gets to be an adult, and you yes. can have nothing at all yes. to say about broader populational issues, right? Um, and I take it that one of the key features of thinking in an evolutionary way is to think about populations and to think about changes in populations over time. So to the extent that you're just studying the kind of embryonic unfolding of one individual in that population, you're studying development without any particular commitment one way or another relating to evolution. However, um, 
I mean, there, there, there is a, a view that begins with the study of evolution and then takes it that the more you learn about evolution, sorry, the more you learn about development, the more you might then start to rethink your views about evolution. So this is the way that the so-called developmental systems theory tends to go. It will say, um, sure, you can um, make changes to uh, genes in, in an early embryo and they will tend to be passed on to future generations. But after all, the only way that genes get to have their reliable phenotypic effects is because of the stable, stable developmental systems in which those genes are embedded. Genes don't get to have effects all by themselves. They rely on environmental influence as well. And everybody agrees about that. That's just kind of standard interactionist thinking. But then the developmental systems theorists will say, well, in addition to that, it's not just the genes that you can tweak that will make reliable differences downstream. There are other things you can tweak. You can tweak the ways in which mothers interact with children, and that will make reliable differences downstream. You can tweak certain kinds of so-called epigenetic structures, and that may make reliable differences downstream. You can certainly tweak the way that people learn things, and that can then make a difference to what they teach their own kids. And moreover, in every case, what effect teaching somebody has depends on all of their interactive anatomy and physiology that enables them to learn a particular skill in the first place from being taught something. So the idea goes that, in fact, what you start to see is that the entirety of the life cycle is constantly involved in allowing any one of the elements in that life cycle to have anything like a stable effect further down the line anyway, right? That's the rough developmental systems idea. And so that leads to a more general kind of evolutionary um, moral, which is that it's a bad idea to think about distinct inheritance systems. Instead, the way in which genes get to have their effect depends on how everything else is acting at a given time, just like the way in which what Christina teaches me depends on my anatomical and physiological setup at a given time. So all of these different processes are all implicated and entwined with one another. Uh, and of course, Christina is absolutely right. That's focusing on an individual, but then you can, of course, step back. And you can still start, start saying interesting things about what happens at the population level. You can still start, start saying interesting things about changes in frequencies of distributions of traits in those populations because it, you can intervene on genes and certain genes will start to proliferate. You can intervene on what we learn and certain kinds of habits will start to proliferate. So you can step back even when you think about these as integrated developmental systems and still think in a, in a way in quite standard evolutionary ways actually in terms of evolution as changes in traits and frequencies in populations whose dynamics over time we, we want to understand. Um, but that developmental systems perspective will make you quite sceptical of the idea that there's any nice neat way of carving up the nature bit on the one hand and the culture bit on the other hand. So that, that's why you end up with this kind of package of views which, in which understanding development informs your general framework for understanding evolution. It also means that you're going to think that there's nothing more to evolution than just lots and lots and lots and lots of instances of individual history viewed from a bird's eye perspective. And it's also going to make you sceptical of the idea that there's this helpful split between the nature bit on the one hand and the culture bit on the other hand. So that's what I think Christina thinks. Thank you. And it's not gene-centred and information is not transmitted. 
I think so, that's... you know, it, it actually is a genuinely <laughs> different um, take. I think that's a somewhat pugnacious transition into the next issue, which has to do about whether there is anything that might be privileged to maybe an informational or a, a Darwinian way of thinking about culture. Um, and on this issue, we have Alex Masudi introducing. Uh, yeah, so we, I guess we've touched on um, many of these issues already. I mean, the, the title of the discussion is Darwinism and the Social Sciences. So just to go back to that, I don't think the social sciences are very Darwinian, um, which in my view I think is um, a shame. There was a, a schism between the biological sciences and the social sciences uh, many years ago for various uh, historical reasons that I won't go into, but I think I think it, it is a shame that much social science research proceeds without taking an evolutionary perspective and without using evolutionary ideas. Um, uh, so can the study of culture be Darwinian? I think in one sense that we've already talked about, the study of culture can be Darwinian in this sense of cultural evolution, using Darwin's theory of evolution um, as an analogy to whatever extent we want to push it um, to uh, study cultural change and using the kind of methods as well that evolutionary biologists have come up with um, over the last 150-odd years when they're studying species and applying those methods to study cultural change. So um, uh, biologists construct phylogenies to reconstruct the history of different species. Cultural evolution folk have been using the same kinds of methods to uh, reconstruct big family trees of languages and folk tales um, and manuscripts and stories um, and artifacts, tools, um, and I think making quite significant advances over previous uh, less quantitative methods of reconstructing history using these quantitative methods of, of constructing um, the history of traits. Um, and I think cultural evolution folk like to run experiments and um, also do field work in ethnography and construct mathematical models in the same way that biologists when they're studying uh, biological evolution so they study drosophila in the lab and run experiments they construct mathematical models um, they do field field studies so um, in a sense i think uh, something to take from uh, an evolutionary approach is this plurality of methods that I think often gets lost in the, the silos of the social sciences where each field has their own uh, preferred method um, that they, they use almost exclusively. Um, and as well, thinking about sort of not just cultural evolution, but Darwin was also, going back to this idea of comparing across species, Darwin was one of the first comparative psychologist, you could call him. So he used to take walks down to London Zoo and observe the primates and um, uh, great ape species and make inferences about the evolution of mind um, and sort of similarities between human and other, other species. Um, cognition, and I think that was also quite missing in the social sciences. That's something else that, that can be usefully taken from Darwin's work, starting to Place it, starting to place human cognition and human culture within a broader framework that allows us to compare across, uh, across species. Um, so, yeah, in these ideas, I think it would be, um, uh, I think it's a good idea to, to adopt a, a Darwinian approach to the, the social sciences more broadly. That's great. Um, Tim, do you have any comments? Um, uh, let me just say just a couple of things really quickly. So, I mean, one of the um, some, something that I, I think I said very near the beginning. Some of the most um, 
some of the most productive work done under the banner of cultural evolutionary theorizing comes from uh, a group of thinkers, particularly people like Pete Rich, a guy called Pete Richardson, Robert Boyd. Um, they, it's interesting that when, when you look at their work and when you look at the way in which they justify what they do as Darwinian, they don't actually place that much stress to begin with on these notions of, of natural selection as a force that acts in the cultural realm. Instead, they say, we think of ourselves as having a Darwinian approach to culture because what we do is we use something called population thinking. And so they say, you know, Darwin understood that adaptation in species happens because of a lot of little events that go on in the lives of individual organisms all added up over long amounts of time to produce overall adaptation in the species. Um, and speciation, too, one species turning into two, that occurs, again, because of the adding up of a lot of just little minor events in the lives of individual organisms such that over time you get some kind of divergence and you have two species where there used to be one. And so population thinking just is the adding up of little things that go on in individual lives such that eventually we have significant uh, overall effects on the population as a whole. And so they say what we're doing is we're just in the business of applying population thinking to culture, and in that sense we're Darwinians. Now I think it's a perfectly reasonable use of the term, it's perfectly reasonable to say we're Darwinians because we use population thinking, but note that there is a sense in which all they're really doing is they're saying, how can we understand overall trends or overall patterns in societies in terms of lots of added up little events in individual lives? How can we understand what happens when lots of individuals learn from each other in a certain kind of way? What kind of difference does that make to the maintenance of tradition in a population? What kind of difference does that make to uh, the, the overall ability of a pop population to sustain a set of technical know-how? Um, and those models are indeed useful, but there, there is a sense in which you could almost use the term quantified approach to social science, almost interchangeably with quite a lot of work that goes on under the banner of cultural evolution. Because a lot of what these people are doing is basically trying to find quantified mathematical ways of understanding what happens in populations given particular ways in which people learn. And I think it is really important to approach those questions in a quantified way because I think if you don't approach them in a quantified way, you can often be very undisciplined in just assuming that it's obvious as to how to translate from individual lives or individual interactions to a population as a whole. But it's not obvious at all. It's very hard. And I think sometimes maths is a helpful way of doing this. But at the same time, there is a sense in which much of the payoff that comes from cultural evolutionary theorizing is really just the payoff that comes when you set anything in, in, a, in a quantified framework. Um, so I think that's all I'll say then. Christine? Uh, yeah. Um, I don't have any problem with the issue of counting. I count things myself. Um, but I think that what's... What's problematic here is that it, it, it seems that the discussion is bound to fall back into these um, distinctions, you know, biology, culture, and so on and so forth. This is what I'm really, really trying to get away from. 
So I certainly, for example, what I want is a unified model of human being in which you have due weight is given to absolutely every aspect of what it is to be human. Now, I'm concerned with humans because that's who I work with, but I could equally think that just with respect to all kinds of uh, speciation, different life forms, and, and so on, that you have to, which is why I read a hell of a lot of biology, neurobiology, neuroscience, you know, I'm reading all of that stuff precisely because what I want to arrive at is a unified model that is capable of dealing simultaneously with the difference that arises out of our similarity to one another and the similarity that resides in difference. That sounds gnomic. It isn't. When you go for difference and you're looking all the time for differences, what, te- what you tend to, you'll suddenly arrive at a point where you think, oh gosh, actually there's an incredible vein of similarity running through these differences. And if what you're doing is going for similarity, you hit difference. So it's, you really need to see them always as like a kind of mebius strip. You know, you think you're starting out on one surface and it takes you actually into, into the other. So... You know, I, I just want to get away from those uh, binary di- distinctions and have everybody doing all of their very interesting work, which bears on what it is to be human. But it would be good if we were able to have more of a, a talk that was actually where we understood one another. I think that's great. So some issues about the merits or maybe the pitfalls of quantification and taking these ideas from Darwin. Um, and on that, I think we'll open up the discussion to the audience. Um, if you have any follow-up questions, please wait for the mic to return to you before you ask them so we can capture them on our podcast. So we have a gentleman up at the front and another gentleman in the far back there. Go ahead. Sorry, did I steal it? I, I think so, actually. I'm trying to remember who it was that I had initially pointed to. Um, <laughs> yeah, not a, a very good Any other gentlemen around me that feel deprived? No. Okay, great. Go ahead. Shall I take it? Um, so Alex says we need to be more uh, Darwinian in general, um, but also more interdisciplinary. Tim, at least in his book, says that we need not be more Darwinian per se, but we certainly should be more interdisciplinary. Um, So my question is, if we want to look at cultural variation through time and we need to observe selection, which disciplines are most useful? It's not sufficient just to say, let's be more interdisciplinary. Uh, For instance, is it more useful to look at historical records, archaeological accounts, to look at change through time, ethnography? What's the most uh, effective way at cataloging cultural variation so that we can look at its evolution through time. Great. Thank you. Uh, gentleman in the back. <clears throat> and that nicely leads me into my question. So, so I'm Tavi, a public health physician. Um, it looks like we've mainly discussed past change so far, but I'm trying to steer us towards thinking about future change and what's causing change today. <clears throat> so some might have argued that if you look at diversity between people today across either place or between time in the past few generations, then it seems that our genes are becoming perhaps more stable whilst our cultures are becoming much more varied. So 
So what is it that determines change today? And, and perhaps it's more culture than genes, even though I take the point that an integrated view would be, would be beautiful. But just for simplicity, maybe we should be putting more of our eggs on the, on the culture basket. So if we take a more pr- practical question such as um, what's, what's, uh, how can we get people to eat more healthy food, for example, uh, or to promote other kind of health-promoting ba- behaviors that we know are beneficial, then surely we should, we should be taking some of the money, some of the billions that's being spent today on genetics research, and some of that should be reallocated or refunneled towards cultural change and anthropology. Or what, what are your thoughts about that kind of theme? Great. And the, the woman up at the front? Um, per- perhaps I'm a bit obsessed because of what tomorrow being Super Tuesday in the States. But where in the whole field of development of evolution of all of it do we put the phenomenon that's happening of Donald Trump (laughs) (laughs) you know with 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 what you know people's values with what people have been working for and moving toward what a nation what a world you know you think there's forward progress and then Donald (sighs) Trump That's great. So we have three, I think, excellent questions. Um, One focusing on if we want to be more interdisciplinary, if we want to encourage all these perspectives, should we privilege one discipline over the other? We have a question about what what can we use this research for? What sort of interventions can we use to, um, I guess, sculpt our world in the way that we want? And then I think a question that follows on quite naturally, what if we don't like where we have ended up. Um, so, Christina, why don't you, why don't you begin? Um, oh, gosh, keeping all of those things in mind. I guess I'll start with the thing that came to mind uh, from the gentleman up here. Oh, first of all, I really don't think one can pri- privilege a particular discipline. That, that would be sort of mad, I think. There's got to be room to, for everybody to do their thing and have their arguments because we are all in good faith doing our best. I, I think so. Um, but uh, the gentleman up here um, is saying we should give more, what we should really do is give more attention to culture. And what was interesting is that you raised a thing that you, we would like to correct. In other words, people's eating habits. Now, one of the things that is fascinating and I think misguided about the biology-culture distinction is that there is a kind of usually unexamined notion that biology gives you a way into kind of truth, fundamental human, human being, all of this sort of thing. And then the culture is a, is a kind of thing on top of that. Okay? And fascinatingly, it is always the domain of error. You start thinking about it. It's the domain of error. That's when you, well, you know, if you, people say something, it's often used as an excuse. That's their culture, okay? Uh, you know, we can't do anything about it. That's their culture. Or that's their culture, and we should change it by trying to make them do some other thing, whoever they are, yes. And um, I think that that really immediately shows you that it's not a useful way of thinking about what human beings are doing. History is a useful way. The history of eating habits unquestionably goes down through generations, but not as a process of transmission, 
but as a process of, you know, having that experience of being, you know, of eating, having a certain kind of aspect to it. And then, of course, it's fantastically inflected by the, you know, the politics and, and economics of, of food production in an era of late capitalism, where which produces Donald Trump, and also the bad eating habits. But, you know, you know that has everything to do with uh, what we're, you know, we've come to be terribly concerned about as an obesity uh, epidemic. Somebody's making a load of money out of it. And it's not the poor people. Great. Alex, did you want to jump in on this question about interdisciplinarity, um, about interventions in the future? Uh, Yeah, interdisciplinarity. I mean, if you're interested in explaining historical change, then I think history and archaeology are the disciplines that you have to start with. My point about interdisciplinarity is that often historians and archaeologists go about their history and their archaeology in a way separate to other disciplines. So my my own background is in psychology. I did my undergraduate down the road at UCL. I did my PhD up in St. Andrews in psychology. Then I went to work with an archaeologist over in Missouri where I was running lab experiments simulating archaeological change. So I was getting people to um, design arrowheads and copy the arrowheads from each other. And so we were using, trying to use principles from psychology about social learning and who people learn from. Do you learn from the most successful arrowhead maker? Do you go for the most popular arrowhead design in your group? Do you ignore everybody else and just use trial and error, sort of instrumental conditioning, using these psychology ideas to try and explain or simulate in the lab historical change? And so I think that's what I was trying to get at, this idea of using different, not just having lots of different disciplines all working on their own on their own separate problems with their own separate theories but trying to work together and trying to cross disciplines with methods and concepts and for me a broader evolutionary perspective kind of lends itself to that cross-disciplinary fertilization because that's what kind of biologists do they have an overarching theory of evolution and then you've got paleobiologists who study the fossil record you've got lab people who study drosophila or e coli you've got field biologists and so on and they're all kind of working on different bits of the picture whereas in the social sciences i think it's often you know completely different people working in different different silos which i think is a shame um, as for Donald Trump, I can't really help. Uh, I mean, we should remember that evolution has no inherent direction. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no progress. There's no guarantee that you'll get to something Unfortunately, better, no however you want to define better, or even more fit species go extinct all the time. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure we can um, take any comfort from uh, a cultural evolutionary theory if, if you want it to guarantee that we won't have a President Trump, I'm afraid. But that would be a, 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 a very complex problem that political scientists are, I'm sure, working on as we speak. So I'm, I'm going to jump in here and introduce the last issue, which I think um, sums up and um, hopefully will allow our panelists to, to sort of reflect on the questions. Um, and what we've been talking about today Um, is the ways in which humans change. Um, And in a recent interview back in 2013, um, Sir David Attenborough suggested that we we had stopped evolving, that we had stopped natural selection as soon as we started being able to rear 
95 to 99% of our babies that are born. As he suggested, we are the only species to have put halt to natural selection of its own free will, as it were. I think the discussions today have really shown that that statement is, is maybe too simple, that we evolve on many different dimensions, and that we can understand those dimensions in many different ways. In fact, I think the discussions today, if anything, have been showing that there's a a really difficult trade-off between the complexity of the phenomenon that we're trying to capture, whether it's development um, or specific parts of cooking traditions, (laughs) and uh, the tools we bring to bear and and the kind of knowledge that we can extract from it. So there's this real trade-off between um, the practicalities of gaining knowledge about, about humans and about our evolutionary past and maybe about how we function in everyday life and the complexities of that, that phenomenon, the richness of it. And so in this, this last section, I would just like to uh, invite the, um, the panelists um, to speak about what they, they think the future of human evolution is, both, I guess, the science and about whether we might have any control over human evolution or, indeed, maybe one of the, the more pertinent questions is whether that's even a sensible question, given the kinds of dialogue that we've had tonight. Um, so, Tim, would you mind, mind saying a little bit on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to begin by ignoring what you just asked me to do. And um, <laughs> I, I just want to backtrack a little bit because, I mean, in response to the previous round of questions, I think it is quite important to be really clear about where I think these cultural evolutionary theories are on their strongest ground. Um, I think that, by and large, what they're aiming to do often but maybe not always, is to try to ask these to step a very, very long way back, take a very, very uh, high-level view of long periods of human history and start to ask very big comparative questions. Questions like, well, since on the face of it there are big risks to be had from learning from other people, why is it that we're able to do this at all? How come our species got to be so good at accumulating large bodies of know-how, whereas other species maybe can do it, but seem to be so much worse than we are? And you can't begin to ask those kinds of big questions about roughly how we got to be so good at culture, sociality, accumulating knowledge. You can't ask those kinds of questions unless you also start asking things like, How's a species going to change over time? What's going to happen in a species if that species is able to learn? What are going to be the pros and what are going to be the cons of those kinds of ways of learning? So that's why cultural evolutionary theorists need to find a way of integrating culture into evolutionary models. It's in order to ask these big questions about why humans are different from other species. Now, even if cultural evolutionary theorists are really good at providing answers to those kinds of questions, how come we got to be so good at culture in the first place? doesn't follow for a minute that they'll also be good at saying things like, how come we have Donald Trump? It doesn't follow for a minute that they'll be good at asking, answering questions like, how can we explain the demise of the trade union movement in the UK? Different questions at different grains of analysis need quite different kinds of answers, and cultural evolutionary models are often in the business of giving very broad grain answers to very broad grain questions. And then when you start asking finer grain questions... They, they don't do so well. Um, 
Has evolution finished? Um, of course, it all depends on what we understand by evolution in the first place. Um, the whole point of cultural evolutionary theory, particularly if you go down Christina's route, which I should say, I'm, I mean, it hasn't, maybe hasn't come out, but I'm very, very sympathetic to this way of, doing develop, uh, way of integrating developmental systems theory with evolution. You're going to think that any kind of process that fairly reliably results in big population-level changes in trait frequencies over time just is an evolutionary process, right? It doesn't matter whether or not it occurs because people start learning things from each other in a different way, people acquire different habits. It's not going to matter. All of these things, the rise in popularity of association football around the world over the last hundred or so years, right? These are all going to count as instances of evolution because they're all instances of changes in trait frequencies across the species in general. Now, you might so in that sense, there's loads of evolution going on. You might say, yeah, but that doesn't count. That's not real. It's not real evolution because you want to say real evolution is just the kind of evolution that happens to genes. And that stops, right? I mean, Attenborough says something rather similar to Darwin when Darwin says humans are the only species that allow their worst specimens to breed. Um, So uh, the thought goes, yeah, but the the genes are not evolving. Well, I mean, again, that depends a little bit on how you're going to carve the cake up. There's still plenty of good evidence that there's selection going on at the kind of level of very, very early embryos. There are lots of kinds of traits which are reliably being selected out because the embryos concerned are just not viable. That's still natural selection. It's still acting on genetic mutation. So there is selection going on in some sense or another. Uh, of course, what people probably mean is something like, oh, no, but we mean the kind of natural selection that's going to turn us... You remember when people used to give visions of the future in sci-fi, but in, not in sci-fi books, in kind of science encyclopedias? We'd all have, like, heads this big because our brains would have been made much, much larger by natural selection. Maybe that's what people mean, and I guess there's not much evidence for that going on at the moment. But, um, yeah, there's evolution. Plenty of it. And are we in control of it? Yes, we are in control of it, because we do have considerable influence over what happens where and when. Great. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Alex, any sort of final remarks? Uh, Yeah, I mean, thinking about what Christine was saying, I do think it is useful to think, I wouldn't use the word nature, but I do think it's useful to think about genetic evolution and cultural evolution. So I think what... Attenborough was talking about there, alluding to, was genetic evolution, changes in gene frequencies, natural selection, acting on genetic variation in human populations. And I think you can measure that. You can do gene editing, you can do genome-wide association studies and and map genetic variation. So I think I would see that as distinct to cultural variation, cultural cultural change. Um, And as Tim mentioned earlier, you have cases of gene culture co-evolution. So in the last few thousand years or so, few, uh, several thousand years since the invention of agriculture, you've had lactose tolerance genes um, increasing in frequency, uh, sickle cell anemia genes, another example, increasing in frequency in certain groups that have slash and burn agriculture, which creates standing water for mosquitoes to breed, which spreads malaria, um, which then increases the frequency of sickle cell uh, anemia genes because that confers <laughs> advantage on malaria. So there's lots of these examples where you can see um, changes in gene frequencies in the recent, uh, you know, recent historical past. Um, probably slowed down now um, because of 
say, the demographic transition where we're all having one or two children and there's um, low, low childhood mortality in uh, increasing numbers of countries. So maybe natural selection on genetic variation is, is slowing down. But um, going back to the previous points, if you see cultural change as an evolutionary process, then there's... As Tim said, lots of evolution going on um, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of cultural uh, change. I guess it's interesting to think about: can we um, sort of manipulate cultural evolution, cultural change? Can we direct it in in ways that we would like it to to go? Can we edit out ideas like religious extremism that pe- members of ISIS have, or? ideas that we might consider to be unpalatable. I guess that's kind of what governments are doing at the moment. Propagandists do, advertisers do, marketers do. They're kind of trying to manipulate people's ideas. I think that's a um, fraught with similar kind of ethical issues that go with editing genes and selecting embryos and who decides what ideas get selected and um, get eliminated. I think there are interesting ethical issues to think through there, um, uh, as well as the idea, you know, uh, are governments effective at doing that? Are advertisers effective um, at doing that kind of meme editing, um, if you want to think about it in that particular way? That's great. And Christina, if you would. Yes, well, I'm just thinking about this question of whether or not we have any control over what is happening. I would say certainly not. I probably, if I think about this, I've probably spent God knows how much of my life trying to make myself over in the sense of being more the person that I would want to be (laughs) rather than one I evince myself to be. And I've never had any success so given that I can't do that just with respect to myself and I think any of you who are parents will know that you do not have control over what is happening with your children that they are not what you have in mind for them to be you can't control that process I don't think we have any control at all Um, I think we have the illusion very often that we have it. And I suppose that illusion saves us from a good deal of even more anxiety than we normally feel on a day-to-day basis. But um, are we evolving? Yes, no doubt. Um, Probably you can go around uh, checking changes in gene frequencies. But as I've said before, I don't think you know much when you know that. You know a tiny little narrow bit of something, but I don't think you know much. And that's, I guess, really my problem with that. And I guess on that that humble perspective, um, we'll close. If you'll join me in thanking our panelists.